Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm going to invite you to turn to two openings of Scripture with us this evening. Acts chapter 10 and Luke chapter 4. Um, we started a number of weeks ago a series that we're calling uh, Healing in the Blood of Jesus. We're using as a, um, uh, as a, a teaching tool, beginning point, I don't know what you want to say, uh, Dr. T.J. McCrossin's book, uh, healing, uh, Bodily Healing in the Atonement. And if you don't have that book, I would encourage you to get a hold of one. They're, they're excellent. They were out of print for many years, and Brother Hagen and Dr. Roy Hicks uh, got, the, got uh, the right some way or another to reprint them and, and uh, get them back out in publication. And, and uh, so you can get those through Brother Hagen's ministry, and you can get them on Amazon other places as well. Now, Dr. McCrossin, in his book, uh, identifies... He was a Greek scholar, by the way. The reason that, uh, that we're, we're using his book... And, of course, we're saying a lot of things that he didn't say, but we're kind of using... Uh, his book is a starting point or a foundation or maybe you could say an outline for the teaching that we're doing. He was a, a renowned Greek scholar and as such he brings out a lot of things from the language that, uh, that I wouldn't know uh, without the benefit of his uh, expertise and his uh, learning. And, uh, and he identifies six reasons, six specific reasons why healing is bodily healing, physical healing is a part of the atoning work of Jesus. Now, we want to talk to you about his reason number four, and that was very simply because the church has the power of the Holy Ghost today. Now, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, it says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Now, this Greek word power is the word dunamis. It's used most often. There are are four different words in in the New Testament that are translated power or that mean power. This is the most common use. It means divine ability or endowment of divine power or divine ability. We shouldn't use the word power to to define power, but that's what it means. It means an endowment of divine ability. So it says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, dunamis, who went about doing good and healing. So you can very clearly see that Jesus had power to heal. But it wasn't in and of himself. It says he was anointed. Now, folks, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but you need to understand something. If Jesus was operating as the Son of God here on the earth, and He never claimed to, never claimed to, there were very few times, of all the times that He identifies Himself to His disciples, 65 different times, five of them, only five of them, He calls Himself the Son of God, and that was in one setting. One time where He was explaining to His disciples His plan or His work here on the earth. The other 60 out of 65 times where Jesus identifies Himself, He calls Himself the Son of Man. Now, why is that? Jesus was identifying with man here on the earth, even though he was identified with God in his sacrifice. But by and large, he came to the earth as a man to operate as a man. He operated with an anointing of God as a man. In um, Mark chapter 12, there was a very uh, important question that was asked. And uh, they came to Jesus and they said, uh, we want to know by whose power do you do this? And Jesus answered them by asking them a question. He says, all right. He said, you answer my question and I'll answer yours. He said, the baptism of John, was it of men or was it of God? Well, the Pharisees are huddling up. They're trying to figure out what's the best answer to give, not what's true. They want to know what answer will keep them from getting in trouble with people. He said, they they conferred among themselves and they said, okay, if we say that this was a baptism of man, the people won't like that. Because they believe John was a prophet of God. John the Baptist was a prophet sent from God. So if we say it was a, a, the, that his ministry was of man only, 
then that's going to get us in trouble with the people. But if we say that his, his baptism or his ministry was of God, then Jesus is going to turn around and say, then why didn't you believe him? Now, folks, that, that line of thinking is just amazing to me because you've got the same thing in the modern-day church. You've got people that are trying to decide whether or not physical healing is a part of the work of Jesus, not based on whether or not it's true, but based on what people are going to think about it one way or the other. You've got some preachers that would not admit that Jesus died for our physical well-being along with our sins because of what their denomination would say. You've got other people whose churches or ministries are based on the, the, the popularity that they have among the people that they have to be very, very careful what they say about physical healing. They have to be very, very careful about what they say about the baptism of the Holy Ghost because they might offend somebody and those people might stop giving. Same thing today. Same exact thing today. I'm not interested in what anybody thinks about anything. I'm interested in what's true. Show me what's true and I'll find enough people that believe the truth. And God will use that group of people. Amen? Thank God you're in that category. So, Jesus, in identifying his own ministry, never to the public claimed to be the Son of God. Only one time in John's Gospel does John give us a record where Jesus is talking to them and he's clearly identifying himself, I am the Son of God. That's the only time out of the three years of ministry that Jesus had here on the earth that he clearly identifies himself that way. Well, why then does the church claim that Jesus was operating here on the earth and healing the sick to prove that he was God? He never said so. In fact, he turned it around and said, the works that I do are not of me. He said, the Father in me doeth the works. Now think about this. Stay with me here for a minute. I want to get some rusty gears working for some of you. If Jesus was operating on the earth as the Son of God, which would make Him God Himself, who can anoint God? Yet Acts 10.38 says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. If Jesus is here on the earth operating, now don't get me wrong, He is the Son of God. I'll explain it in a minute. He is the Son of God, no question about it. But if He's operating here on the earth as the Son of God, why would He need to be anointed? He's God. And see, that's what so much of the modern-day church believes. They believe Jesus did the signs and wonders and miracles and healings and the other stuff that He did because He was the Son of God. He said that was not the case. The Bible tells us very clearly that He laid aside His heavenly power and glory and came to the earth to be like a normal per person, a normal man. Therefore, if He's going to do supernatural or spectacular or miraculous works, He's going to have to have an anointing of God. Now, you remember Mark chapter 12 where they asked uh, Jesus, where does your power come from? And Jesus said, tell me about the baptism of John. They wouldn't answer him. They said, well, we can't answer. They were stuck either way. Either answer they gave would make somebody unhappy or show them up. And so they said, well, we can't answer. And Jesus said, well, neither will I answer your question. But now what is the answer to Jesus' question? The same answer as John's. Jesus is saying, my anointing, my power, the source of the works that I'm doing is the same as John's. Who was John? He was a man anointed of the Holy Ghost. How did Jesus operate here on the earth? As a man anointed of the Holy Ghost. If that were not true, there's no way he could have told you and me that we would do the works that he did and even greater works. Why? Because if he's doing them as the Son of God, you and I are never going to live up to that same thing. We're never going to be the same Son of God in stature as Jesus was by being born of a virgin. If that was the source of His power, if that was the source of His miracles, we're sunk. And He lied. 
But thank God he didn't lie. Amen? So Acts 10.38 again. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. If he hadn't laid aside his heavenly power and glory, he would have had no need of an anointing. But God did anoint him. He anointed, he anointed him when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John. He anointed him and the Holy Ghost came upon him, landed upon him, and everybody bore witness that it came down from heaven and stayed. Then there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's when God anointed him. And so what did Jesus do with that anointing? Who went about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Tells us what he was anointed with. He was anointed with the Holy Ghost and power. Miraculous ability. Who went about doing good. Folks, I want you to understand the good that Jesus did, the healings and the miracles that Jesus did were as a result of being anointed with the Holy Ghost and power. Not because he was the Son of God, but because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost and power. So what did he do? Who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil? Why? But God was with him. How do we know God was with him? Because he's anointed him. The anointing was God with him. The presence of the Holy Ghost was God with him. That was the source of his miraculous ability or miraculous endowment. Dunamis. Now look with me to John chapter, or I'm sorry, uh, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, it tells us after Jesus was, uh, was in the wilderness, he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And then he went immediately to the wilderness. And while he was out there in the wilderness, he spent 40 days out there. And it says after he was hungry, after the, the end of his time in the wilderness, the devil came and tempted him. Many people read this as the devil was on his back for 40 days. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus did not go into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He went into the wilderness so he could separate himself into the things of God. He's fasting and he's praying to prepare himself for ministry. Why? Because he's just been anointed. Now he's separating himself for the plan and the purpose of God. He's drawing near to God. He's putting spiritual things first so that he can effectively use the anointing that he's been given. Why? Because he's a man. He's subject to the same temptations. He's subject to the same failures that you and I would be, only the, the difference is he never missed it. So after he's out there for a period of time, then the devil came and tempted him. Jesus answers him, answers the temptation, shows us what the pattern of how to deal with temptation is. Answer the temptation with what the Word says. Quote Scripture to the temptation. It is written. Jesus said three different times, three different temptations. It is written. That's showing us the pattern of how we should handle it too. That's how Jesus handled it as a man who was anointed of the Holy Ghost. After that, it says in verse 14... And Jesus returned. Please notice verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. And Jesus returned from the temptation, from the time in the wilderness, fasting and praying. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. He returned in the power of the Spirit. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Wasn't he anointed when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River with the Holy Ghost and power? Yet Jesus, after he was anointed, felt it important enough to separate himself to the things of God. If that's important for him, where do you think that leaves us? See, so many times as Christians, we just flippantly take the things that the Bible says. Oh, okay, Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Okay, great, I'm filled with the Holy Ghost, I speak with tongues, I've got the power. And we never separate ourselves to the things that God's given us. As a result, they never become important to us. The Holy Ghost becomes a hitchhiker through life rather than the greater one 
dwelling on the inside of us. Somebody asked me the other day, Pastor Mike, you were talking about, I made some mention of service in a service, something or other, how that I got in the presence of God, spent some time praying, got in the presence of God, and, and the Lord began to show me some things. He said, uh, this guy said, uh, you know, how do I get God to show me? I said, look, there's only one way to get there. Spend long enough to pray in tongues where your mind goes quiet. Brother Hagin said the first time he did it, it took him two and a half hours. First time I did it, it took me an hour and 45 minutes. Now that right there, turn some people off. There are some charismatics, there are some people that are filled with the Holy Ghost that would not even consider spending that kind of time in prayer to get to the place where God can talk to you. Now, it takes me about 10 minutes to get there. But initially, it took me about an hour and 45 minutes. Longest hour and 45 minutes I've ever spent in my life. But one hour and 46 minutes was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my life. Something happened. I don't know how to describe it. Something happened. Brother Hagin used to describe it this way. He said after praying for two hours and 30 minutes or whatever it was, I think I've got that time right. After praying for that period of time, he said all of a sudden, he said before then it was dry, I was having to push, I was trying to make it happen, but all of a sudden I hit a gusher. You know how they used to drill wells back in Texas? Brother Hagin was from Texas, so he used those kind of illustrations and examples. He said, you drill down, you hit a gusher, and all of a sudden, oil will start flying everywhere. He said, that's how it felt like on the inside of me. He said he spent another hour and something praying, and he said, that seemed like two or three minutes. He said, I was carried along by the Holy Ghost. Folks, there's a place in God that many Christians, even those that are filled with the Spirit, never reach. It's the first thing Jesus did. He's anointed with the Holy Ghost and power, and he goes immediately to separate himself to the things of God. Now, folks, I would submit to you that natural thinking, from a natural thinking standpoint, we could conclude or we could assume or we could conjecture why in the world would Jesus need to separate himself to the things of God? It's not like he's got to put away sin. What's he separating himself to? I mean, all he knows is God. Yet he went to the wilderness so he could be alone with his Father. If that alone time was important for Jesus, how much more important should it be for you and me? You'll find that Jesus followed that pattern. His alone time became times where he went to pray. What's he doing? Same thing. He's separating himself to the things of God. You don't see him fasting again. You don't see him going out into the wilderness after that except for, for periods of time where he would pray. Sometimes it would be all night. Most of the time it would just be for shorter periods of time, a few hours or whatever. But the first thing Jesus does is go into the wilderness to separate himself to the things of God. And so what happens? He returns in the power of the Spirit. Now not only is he anointed, but now he's separated to the power. In other words, he's in sync with what God's given him. So what happens? Verse 15, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified... Or I didn't finish verse 14, I'm sorry. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. You mean all that separation to God was just so he could teach? Now, please notice that it says a fame went, went round about the region. In other words, people are starting to talk about him. Why are they talking about him? You've got to read the rest of the story to figure out what happened. The parts that the Bible, you've got to fill in the blanks of what the Bible hasn't told us yet. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. 
And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. First thing Jesus taught when he came back from separating himself to the power and the anointing that he's been given is he taught that he was anointed. Now, I don't think that's a pattern that we should follow today. I don't agree with all these people that go around teaching that they're anointed. I think the pattern is for us to do what Jesus did and teach that he was anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. Draw attention to him. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. We've talked about this before. That has nothing to do with emotional hurts. That's talking about a breach in spirit. Sickness came upon the earth because of a breach in the spiritual system that God established. To heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And all and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's King James English speak for Jesus saying, Those scriptures are talking about me. Now, everybody understood that those scriptures had to do with the Messiah. So all you had to do was hang around Jesus a little bit, and he would clearly tell you, here's who I am. But even then, he didn't claim to be the Son of God. But he is clearly saying, those scriptures that you know refer to the Messiah are talking about me. Well, that should have been enough to spark a revival, shouldn't it? But it didn't. Notice it goes on to say, all bear him witness and wondered... At the gracious words, what sure sounds right. Man, there's something about what he's saying. They wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, here's the question. Folks, here's how the, here's how the, the leading of the Holy Ghost works. There's something about what you hear from the Word of God that settles in on the inside of you and it's like, yeah, that's right. And then the thought comes. Which way are you going to go? You're going to go with what seems right on the inside? You're going to go with the thought. They went with the thought. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, he can't be the Messiah because we know his dad. Everybody understood the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And we know his dad. He grew up here. His dad was, was, had the carpenter shop down the street. He can't be the Messiah. See how thoughts talk you out of the truth? Now, if they turned around and they said, Jesus, man, we believe what you're saying, but how is it that Joseph is your father? Now, that'd be different. Now, they're asking for clarification, but they've already decided. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? Oh, we're too smart to be taken in by this. We know his dad. <laughs> no, they didn't. That was the problem. They didn't know his dad. So they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Now notice, please notice verse 23. Jesus said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb. What proverb, Jesus? Here it is. Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Now folks, let me ask you a question. When did he go to Capernaum? And what miracles or what signs or what healings or what great things, what wonders did he do in Capernaum? And when? See, the Bible left us, left, left us a blank that Jesus is now filling in. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and he preached in the Capernaum area, and that's where a fame went abroad for, for what he, who he was and what he was doing. 
That's why there was fame going around. Because now he identifies, I know that you've heard about me. And so now you want to see the same wonders, the same signs, the same miracles, the same healings. Now you want to see the same miraculous stuff that you heard about in Capernaum. You want me to do it here. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The proverb that Jesus mentions is very, very important. And most of the time people just blow by it without giving it a second thought. The proverb that Jesus uses is, Physician, heal thyself. What does that mean? Well, in modern day language, it means this. A doctor who's not healthy is not very good doctor. If a doctor can't prescribe his own cure, if a doctor can't prescribe something that keeps him healthy, what has he got to tell you and me? Now, why is that important? Because that's exactly what people say about Paul. They say Paul had this terrible eye condition or terrible disease or some infirmity of the flesh. He had this thorn in the flesh, and even though God still used him to lay hands on handkerchiefs and aprons and caused sickness to go out of other people and cast the devil out of other people, and he laid hands on the, uh, uh, what was the guy's name, Publius Father, who was sick of a bloody flux and, and healed him, even though God used him in healing ministries, miracles, even though he raised the dead, that guy that fell out the window while he was preaching, his preaching went long, he fell asleep and fell out of the window, even though Paul raised this guy from the dead, Paul had this terrible affliction in his flesh. Folks, Jesus is telling us, people aren't that stupid. If I'm preaching healing works for you, shouldn't it be working for me? As proof, in some measure, I mean, would it make sense for me to start teaching you how you can be healed if you can clearly see that I'm sick and not getting healed? That's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, prove it. Prove it by doing something. The same works, the same miracles, the same healings that we've heard in Capernaum do here too. But then he goes further and he said, But I say unto you that a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. Then he goes further and talks about, uh, uh, you know, the, if others had this opportunity, they'd believe and so forth. Now, if you want the comparison here to what happens, it says in Mark chapter 6. Why don't you turn with me over to Mark chapter 6. We'll look at this real quick. Keep your finger here because we'll come back to Luke 4. But Mark chapter 6 tells us Mark's account of the same experience. Same time in Nazareth. Mark chapter 6, notice in verse 4, Jesus says unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work. Please notice, folks, it does not say, and he would there do no mighty work. It says that he could not. If you look this up in a concordance, you'll find out that it literally means could. It's talking about ability, not choice. It says, and he could there do no mighty work. Well, what's a mighty work? A sign or a wonder or a miracle. He could there do no mighty work, save, here's the only thing he was able to do, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks and healed them. Vine's uh, expository dictionary of New Testament words says of this word sick, it says sickly, folks with minor ailments in other words. The only results that Jesus was able to get in Nazareth, his own hometown, was that he laid hands on a few folks with minor ailments and got them healed. And he marveled, verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. 
Notice it does not say that he marveled because of his lack of power. It says that he marveled because of their unbelief. What stopped the anointing, the miraculous endowment that he had by the Holy Ghost given to him from God to enable him to do miraculous things? What stopped him from being able to do those miraculous works? Their unbelief. Now, folks are real quick to say, with God, all things are possible. You know, in one sense, that's not true. God has all power, but He cannot violate another person's will. Why? Because He's established His Word above His name. In other words, He operates according to His Word rather than just what He's able to do. Here, Jesus had the ability, but they stopped it from working because of their unbelief. So what did he do? He marveled because of their unbelief and went about their cities and villages teaching. Why is he teaching in that area? Because he's trying to get people to believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So what I want you to see is the power of the Spirit is the very thing that enabled Jesus, when people would believe, to do the signs, the wonders, and the miracles. Can you see that? That's the same power that Jesus said we would receive. He told His disciples in Acts chapter 1, but you will receive power, dunamis, miraculous endowments of the Holy Ghost. You will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now we so often magnify the tongues because the tongues, speaking with tongues is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit, but the result is to be power. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that that tongues are not important, they're hugely important. They're a way for us to separate ourselves to the things of God, just like Jesus separated Himself by going into the wilderness. It's a way for you to spiritually charge yourself. It's the entry to the power, without question. But the result is power. Now, who did Jesus say that to? He said it to disciples that had already seen Him raised from the dead, disciples that He had already breathed on and said, Receive the Holy Ghost, disciples that were already saved. So in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus said, you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, they're already saved, but they don't have power. Saved doesn't mean powerful. Jesus said to His disciples, who were saved, He said, now you need power. The power comes with the infilling of the Holy Spirit, not being saved. If that were the case, then Jesus would have breathed on them and said, now you've got it all. But he didn't. Or, on the other side, Jesus would have waited to get them saved on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Ghost was poured out so that they could get it all at once. But he didn't. He breathed on them and showed us the dual work of the Holy Ghost. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. So what's he saying? He's saying when he breathed on them, that Holy Ghost that came to them was connected to the remission of sins. We would say that as they got saved. We know there was a change in them. Where before they were behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, the Bible says from that point forward they were openly in the temple praising God. They had a boldness about them. They had a knowledge, assurance, an assurance, a confidence that something had changed. Well, what had changed? They know Jesus is alive. That's what it takes to get saved, isn't it? Believing that Jesus is alive and confessing Him as Lord. I could take you back to that very same place and show you where they confess Jesus is Lord. 
They met the qualifications of salvation. And that's why Jesus breathed on them. He said, receive the Holy Ghost. And then he said to that group a few days later, he said, now you need power. That's the same power that's given to the church. The very same, one in the same power that's given to the church. Now let me show you one of the works of the Holy Ghost. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about some other things. And I know I'm not going to get finished with this tonight. But let me just introduce it at least and then we'll pick up with it next time. Romans chapter 8. I want you to see one of the things that the Bible says about the Holy Ghost. Now while you're turning there, let me remind you of some other scriptures that you already know. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul says to Timothy, For God has not given us the spirit of pure, spirit of the spirit of fear. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, dunamis, love, agape, and of a sound mind. In other words, it's telling the church. He's telling Timothy, as a member of the body of Christ, he's saying power is part of what God has given us. Now, he knows Timothy's filled with the Holy Ghost, so there's no question. He's speaking to him as an individual. There's no question whether or not he has power. How does Paul know? Because you receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Not after you get saved, after you get filled with the Spirit. That's when the power comes, and Paul identifies it. Okay? Over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that power has been given to the church. How? Through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, or we might say it this way, through the baptism or the infilling of the Holy Ghost. That's when the power is made available. That's when power comes upon you, just like power came on Jesus when he was baptized in the Jordan River by John. Those are parallel events. Jesus didn't need to get saved. He's already righteous. Well, what did he need? He needed power to do the work that God had given him to do. Well, after you get saved, you're already made righteous. But if you're going to do the works of Jesus, you're going to need his power. That's where the baptism of the Spirit comes in. I get amused with some of the, the, the denominations and some of the church people that say, well, you know, that baptism of the Holy Ghost, you don't really need that. Really? Jesus seemed to think so, at least concerning the disciples. He said, wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. We still need the same thing, folks, if we're going to do the works of Jesus. Now, if you're not going to do anything, if you're just waiting it out until Jesus gets here, okay, maybe you don't need it. You know, you can answer to the Lord for yourself whether you took that position. But for me, knowing that Jesus told me to occupy till he comes, I need the same power that he had. I believe everybody does. So in Romans chapter 8, let me show you something that the Bible says about the Holy Ghost. Verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. A lot of people let these, these words twist them up, like the groanings part. I've got to tell you, before I was filled with the Holy Ghost, that scripture scared the bejeebers out of me. Groanings. I don't groan. What? Groanings. And you get some charismatics, bless their darling hearts, that wouldn't have enough knowledge to, if, if all the, the knowledge they had was dynamite, they couldn't blow their nose. I mean, it's just, it just ridiculous, the level of knowledge that some charismatics have or don't have. And so they see things like this, and then they put on a show. 
They try to do something in the flesh thinking that they're operating according to the Scripture. That's not what it means at all. The, word, the, the phrase groanings which cannot be uttered literally in the Greek means God talk. Likewise, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us. Now, in this case, it's talking about gives us words to speak. How does He do that? By giving us a language that we don't know, but that God does. What's He talking about? He's talking about speaking in tongues. That's all it means. That's all it's speaking. That's all it's referring to. It's saying the Holy Ghost gives you utterance to speak in other tongues. That's how He helps your infirmities. Now, I want you to notice the word infirmities. It's a very, very interesting word. It's the, it's the, the, the root family of this word infirmities. Now, what I mean by that is uh, there, are, there are different tenses in the Greek. There are different persons, first person, second person, third person in the Greek. And, and, but they're all of the same family. The family of this word that's translated infirmities is also the most common word that's translated sickness or sick. But not always. This is a great example because you can see that Paul is not talking about sickness. He's not saying, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our sickness, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. Well, no, the infirmity that he's talking about, and by the way, by the way this word infirmity literally means feebleness of body or soul. He's clearly saying that there is a feebleness or a weakness. The root word is strengthlessness. There is a strengthlessness, a lack of knowledge specifically about what to pray for in many cases. Well, how does the Holy Ghost help you with that? By giving you utterance in other tongues so that you can pray the will of God. So in this case, we can see very specifically and very clearly that he's not talking about sickness. But what about Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17? Matthew 8, 16 and 17 says, uh, When the evening was come, they brought unto Jesus many that were afflicted and uh, many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed the sick that it might be, this is verse 17 now, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Same word, infirmities. What does it mean? It means a feebleness of either body or soul. Or mind, excuse me, not soul, but either feebleness of body or a feebleness of mind. So what does it mean? Well, it means a strengthlessness. Specifically in that situation, it's talking about a weakness in body. How do we know? Because it's translated, the word translated sickness is right there with it. It tells us this is what Isaiah is talking about. Now let me show you a couple other examples real quickly. I won't take a lot of time with this, but I want you to see some other things. Look with me to um, um, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and uh, it tells us about the healing of the leper, beginning in verse 12. Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Verse 15 says, but so much the more, uh, well, verse 14, better tell, say what verse 14 is about. He charged the leper to tell no man, but go and show himself to the priest. Now, he didn't say don't tell anybody that you were healed. He's saying don't tell anybody before you fulfill the law of Moses. When a leper was cleansed, there was very specific ritual and a very specific way that he had to, to operate according to the priest. So he says, don't tell anybody, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according to Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed of their infirmities. 
Well, looking from the verse and the context and the way the word is used, what would this feebleness of body or mind refer to? Well, I guess it could have referred to both. It could refer to somebody that had a mental condition, a weakness or a, 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 a mental... Con- what else would you say? How else would you use that? Some kind of mental case or mental condition? I guess it could have applied to that, but you can clearly see that it's talking about healing. You can clearly see that the subject is healing. So whether it's a physical thing or a mental thing, it's still healing is the result, right? Okay, look with me now to Luke chapter 7. Here's a word that's translated or used for infirmity that's a different word. Verse 20, When the men were coming to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us unto you, saying, Are you the one that that should come? Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities. Now, this word infirmity is a different word. It means malady. But you can see clearly that it's talking about sickness. He cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits and gave unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would the translators use a word that means malady to translate infirmity? Because they understood that a weakness of body or mind would most often fall into the... or that sickness would most often fall into that category. So they use the word infirmity. But not everywhere where infirmity is used is a sickness talked about. Romans 8.26 is a good example. Let me show you another couple examples. Look with me over to uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 2. We'll start in verse 1. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him. And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Healing's the subject. So it's got something to do with either mind or body here that they've been healed of. Certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. So infirmities here was certainly referring to some kind of physical condition or mental condition, right? Romans chapter 15. Let me show you something else here. I want to make just a real quick point. Stay with me just a little bit more, and then we'll go forward. We might backtrack a little bit on this next Sunday night. Oh, not next Sunday night. Next Sunday night is Christmas. Well, when we meet again. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Notice what Paul is saying. He said, we then that are strong... Now, here's the word dunamis. Strong is the word dunamis. We that are powerful ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, this word infirmity literally means a scruple of conscience. In other words, he's talking about weak-mindedness. He's saying we that are strong ought to help those that aren't as strong as us. And yet infirmity is used. Now turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll quit with this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You're going to be familiar with this one because this is Paul's thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Paul has just told about this, uh, the, the infirmity of the flesh and so forth. Or he's talked about all of his uh, uh, ministry trouble. And then he says in verse 30, he, he says, If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. This is the word that means feebleness of body or mind. Now, what is he talking about? So much of the church has taken the things that Paul said about his infirmity 
And they've taken that and they've applied it to physical things. But we've already seen that not every time that the word infirmity is used, not even every time that this Greek word is used, does it refer to physical conditions. Let's back up and read verse 29 too. Paul said, who is weak? Well, let's back up to verse 27 where he starts talking about some of his ministry trouble. He's explaining, he's referring to his own experience. He said, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without or come at me from the outside, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul said, the greatest burden I've got is caring for the people that I've left behind. Verse 29, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? He said, I've got the same stuff to deal with that you do. Now, the word weak in verse 29 is the same word infirmity in verse 30. Same root word, different person, but same root word. It means feebleness of body or mind. So in verse 29, if Paul is talking about weakness, how in the world? And the context is, who is weak and I'm not weak? In other words, he's saying, those of you that think I don't have anything to deal with, I'm just as weak in in the flesh as you are. I have just as many opportunities to be offended as you do. But if I'm going to glory in something, I'm going to glory in my infirmities. In other words, I'll glory in my weakness. Why would he talk about infirmities as being a physical condition in verse 30 when it was a weakness in verse 29? Do you see the point that he's making? Chapter 12, verse 5, he says, Of such a one, this he's talking about when he was caught up into heaven, the third heaven, he said, Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself. Yet I will glory in mine, I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. He's talking about the same weaknesses that he started in chapter 11 talking about. He said, If I'm going to glory in something, I'm going to glory in my weakness. Why? Because the whole point that he makes is when he gets over to verse 9, He says, the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Weakness. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Feebleness. I take pleasure in the things that I don't have it all together. I take pleasure in the things I don't know. I take pleasure in the things that I'm weakest in. I take pleasure in those things. Now, folks, it's a different mindset that Paul has than most people have. Most people try to hide their weaknesses. Paul said, I've learned to glory in my weaknesses. Why? For when I am weak, that's when the power of God is made manifest in me. God doesn't need to help you in the stuff you're strong in. He's saying the things that I'm the weakest in. Well, what are you weak in, Paul? I'm weak in dealing with this persecution that's coming against me. Has anybody ever really dealt with a lot of persecution in their life? And what a glorious experience that is. People for no reason, without cause, just keep after you and keep after you and just keep after you. It doesn't take long. You want to take somebody apart. Well, the Bible says pray for your enemies. Okay, I'll pray. I'll pray they get hit by a bus. That's how we feel. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. Paul winds up praying for the very people that are coming against him, saying, I'd give up my salvation for them if they could get saved. 
What's he doing? He's glorying his weakness. He's just told us, I have the same subject. I'm subject to the flesh just like everybody else is. I'm just as weak as you are. I get just as offended as you do. But how did he learn to handle it? When Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, he says, okay. Well, instead of trying to hide my weaknesses or trying to overcome my weaknesses, what I need to do is need to realize the things that I am subject to in the flesh, that's when God's power shows up. Now, folks, every time, I want you to understand something, every time Paul was persecuted, he came out on top. Never was fun, but he always came out on top. They threw him in jail, earthquakes would open the jails up. They stoned him, left him for dead, God raised him from the dead. They beat him, and people came to Jesus when they heard his testimony. Over and over and over again, the power of God was made manifest in the things that he was trying to escape until he learned. And then he came to the place where he says, whoa, I've got it now. I will glory in my weaknesses. Now, folks, please understand, Paul understands something about weaknesses. That's why he tells you in Romans 8, 26, likewise the Spirit also helps our infirmities. God helps you in your weaknesses. Now, the weaknesses he's talking about are feebleness of body, or mind. That means he helps you in the things that you don't know. How do you think Paul came to the realization of the power of God working in you? Because he didn't know, he asked God, and the Holy Spirit showed him. So the Spirit helped his infirmity. Well, what about when sickness attacks us? Sickness is included in infirmities too. Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So infirmities could sometimes mean sickness as well. What happens there? The Holy Spirit helps your infirmities. Now, how does He do that? Remember Romans 8.26? We looked at it a little bit before. It says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. That word helpeth is a really interesting word. It means this. It's, made from two com- it's a compound word in the Greek, and it means two different things. It means to take hold together with against. When it says the Holy Spirit helpeth our infirmities, it means the Holy Spirit takes hold together with you against your weakness. Whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's people coming against you that's causing difficulty in your life, like in Paul's case, whatever it is, whatever you're weak in, whatever situation, circumstance, or, 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 or adversity is causing you weakness in any area whatsoever, it says that's what the Holy Ghost takes hold together with you against. That's exactly the same thing Jesus is saying, my strength is made perfect in weakness. So here's what I want you to know about sickness. When sickness comes against you, you've got a divine helper. Here's the power of the Holy Ghost that works in you. He takes hold together with you against the sickness. How does he do that? Romans 8, 11. If the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. The word quicken means to make alive. To make alive. How do we get the Holy Ghost to take hold together with us? Folks, it's very simple. The same way He takes hold with you against any other thing that comes against you, and that is by faith. Faith is what causes the Holy Ghost to take hold together with you against your infirmity. 
against sickness, against lack of knowledge, against trouble that comes from the outside, whatever it is, that which makes the Holy Ghost take hold together with you to make dead things alive in your life is faith. You receive the Holy Ghost by faith. You receive salvation by faith. You receive healing by faith. You receive provision by faith. The Bible says it's impossible to receive anything from God without faith. Faith is that which activates the Holy Ghost taking hold together with you against whatever you face. You've got a divine helper. No wonder the Bible says greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. No wonder Paul said we're more than conquerors. When you understand these things, when you understand this is what God has ordained for the Holy Ghost to do for you, you don't come upon anything that's too big for you. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I've learned to quit fighting against and trying to make things comfortable. Because when I lean back, and trust the Lord to help me in my areas of weakness, that's when He does His thing. That's how I get Him to take hold together with me against this. And then we come out in victory. Not necessarily the most comfortable way, but it's always the most supernatural way. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead quickens your mortal body. How? By you and Him together, in faith, taking hold together against the sickness that comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the Holy Ghost, the greater one that lives on the inside of us. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to understand the Spirit of God and how He helps us. Father, I ask you to make these things alive to us. I ask you, Father, to show us that how by simply Simply believing and confessing your word, taking hold of your word, the Holy Ghost takes hold together with us against the sickness that would attack our bodies. Thank you, Father, that he does supernatural things. Thank you for miraculous results. Miraculous results, Father. Miraculous results of healing. Miraculous results of deliverance because of the greater one that dwells in us. He quickens our mortal bodies. He makes alive that which is subject to death. In Jesus' precious name, amen.